Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and I am your host for the Unity in Christ program. A while back, I saw a very touching video. The video was about the 1968 Olympic marathon race, which was held in Mexico City. This video was made almost 50 years ago and was not in high definition, yet it gave me a lot of inspiration. After this song... I will spend some time discussing it. Is there anyone who remembers what happened at the 1968 Olympics marathon race that was held in Mexico City? This is the story of one marathon runner named John Stephen Akwari. John Akwari is a Tanzanian runner who won first place at the African Marathon Championships prior to the Olympics. Many believed he would place at the 1968 Olympics marathon. Another marathon runner named Abibi from Ethiopia had won two gold medals from previous Olympics, and because he was after his third, Akwari was believed to at least get the silver or bronze. However, Mexico was very different from Africa where he had been training. Mexico City was located at an altitude which was over 2,000 meters, or 6,560 feet, and had lower air pressure. The temperature for the day of the marathon was nearly 90 degrees. It was a difficult course. 
75 runners started the race, but 18 gave up in the middle. Although circumstances didn't seem to be in his favor, Akwari did his best. But at 19 kilometers from the starting point, Akwari bumped into another runner, dislocated his knee joint, thus falling and hitting his shoulder hard against the pavement. The course was 42.195 kilometers long. He wasn't even finished with half of the race and was injured. Akwari was devastated. It seemed impossible for him to finish the race. However, Akwari wrapped his knee with gauze and enduring the pain, started to run again. While limping, he continued to run, walk, run, and walk. One by one, all the competitors began to pass by him, and he was the last one running. The sun began to set, and dusk was upon the streets. Nevertheless, Akwari did not give up. He continued the race, limping, walking, and running. At the 1968 Mexico City Olympics Marathon, as many had expected, the Ethiopian athlete, Abibi, won first place, winning his third Olympic gold medal with the record of 2 hours, 20 minutes, and 26 seconds. It was a great accomplishment. Soon after the award ceremony, the crowd cheered the runners. After the ceremony, the media team started to leave, crowds started to leave, and the stadium became quiet. One hour had passed since Abibi finished his race. At that moment, there appeared someone who was entering the stadium limping. It was John Aquari. The crowd, who still remained in the stadium, stood up to cheer Akwari, who did not give up the race, even though he was injured. Akwari gathered his might to run again, and as the last runner, he passed the finish line with a record of 3 hours and 25 minutes, 27 seconds. He finished the race. It was an amazing moment. One reporter asked him why he did not give up. Aquari answered the question, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. The reason why they sent me 5,000 miles was to finish the race. I was deeply impressed by his answer. It was inspiring to see him running even though he was injured. But I was more touched at the fact that he had a purpose of finishing the race because he knew his country had sent him with such purpose. And I believe today Christians should remember what Ekwari had to say.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus on Fasting, based on Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. There was a season in this larger church where extended fast became really in vogue. And so a number of men on this particular large church's staff began to enter into these extended fast of what they were really shooting for was 40 days. Now, I know that sounds crazy. I mean, it's biblical, but it sounds crazy, right? I mean, they were really looking at biblical examples like Moses, who you remember went up on the Mount Sinai and fasted for 40 days before God handed him his law. Or Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 4 fasted for 40 days before confronting Satan himself in the desert. So they were looking at these texts and they said, hey, this is what Jesus did. This is what Moses did. This is what we ought to do. That's really what we're going to be thinking about this morning is fasting. In fact, as we look in Mark, we're going to be exposed to a group of people who come before Jesus and they're a little confused about the disciples and they're not fasting. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. See, we're right back in Mark and his gospel and our series, The Amazing True Story of Jesus, where we've been thinking about who Jesus is according to Gospels Mark. Now, as you know, we've been going through this gospel and we've seen that Mark has really given us a lot to think about as far as who Jesus is. In fact, he opens up his gospel by displaying the incredible, unparalleled authority of Jesus. He has authority over demons and sickness. And he had such authority that people had never seen before that often it leads the crowd stunned saying something like, we've never seen anything like this 
before. But in chapter 2, the chapter begins with some confrontations where the Pharisees begin asking questions of Jesus about whether or not he was really playing by the right rules. I mean, Jesus doesn't look like he's doing what he ought to be doing if he is who he says he is. I mean, Jesus claimed to forgive sins and he ate with sinners. And that left the Pharisees feeling a little bit like Jesus was spiritually careless, exactly like they would expect from those Galileans. So this week, Mark introduces us to yet another conflict with Jesus. They ask, why did Jesus' disciples feast while John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? They're asking, why is it that your disciples are feasting with sinners when they ought to be fasting like other faithful renewal movements? And see, this is where Mark is going to introduce us to what Jesus has to say about fasting. And what we're going to see is that Jesus tells us that we will fast until Jesus returns so we can feast with God. We will fast until Jesus returns so that we can feast with God. That's the big idea that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, you'll remember that we just left Jesus feasting with sinners. The Pharisees did not like that. And here, people have a problem because Jesus is not fasting like the others. His disciples aren't. He doesn't play by their rules. Now, just take note of how this problem unfolds in verse 18. So look with me again in your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. And here's how the whole situation begins. Beginning in verse 18, this is what it says. Now, John's disciples, and speaking of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples did not fast? Now, our first point here is the disciples, we realize they didn't fast. They're not fasting. Now, we don't know who it is in this text that comes to Jesus with a question about his fasting. But apparently some in the crowds who have been following and watching him have noticed that Jesus, his disciples, are not fasting like other spiritual men do. Not like the Pharisees and not like John the Baptist and his followers. And maybe you're wondering this morning as you hear this, you're thinking to yourself, but what is fasting? I I don't know if I really have a solid understanding of that myself. Well, if you don't know what fasting is, the Bible normally speaks of fasting as giving up food for spiritual reasons. You take a moment, a period of time, maybe a day, maybe a meal, maybe a week. In some cases in the Bible, we've seen 40 days, people spending without food so they can focus on spiritual needs and desires. Now, I still remember when I was in high school, I was at a youth camp and David Nasser was speaking and he said, I want y'all all to take a fast, but you don't have to take a fast from food. You can take a fast from something else, right? Like TV. I remember thinking to myself, that's, that's not right. That's not what fasting is. Because when you read about fasting, fasting is from food. And of course, if you take a fast from TV, you can survive, like forever, right? But if you fast from food, eventually you're going to die. There's nothing more basic than food. Food's a bigger deal. So is that really fasting if you take a break from something like TV or something other than food? That's a question I had in my mind. To be honest with you, I really thought that at the time David Nasser was weak. I mean, that's a weak way to fast, right? Like, let's go all in if we're going to do this. But as I continued to read and to learn, I later discovered that he wasn't the only guy that said this stuff. I later discovered that 
Richard Foster, who his book, Celebrating Discipline, was sort of one of the main resources for spiritual disciplines when I was in college. He said, fasting is the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Now, when he says denial of a normal function, for some of us, that would probably include like smartphones and looking at them every six seconds, right? It's pretty normal for us. He's basically saying there are other things other than food that you can fast from. And then later I read John Piper, who has written a lot on fasting, and he says, fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, not exclusively food, but like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. In other words, fasting according to these men can be from something other than food, things like social media, TV, coffee, or even romance with your wife, to focus more on spiritual things like prayer. But what we know is, is remember, it has to be you're fasting from something that you normally would do and want. So if you're like, I'm going to fast from Diet Cokes, but you only drink regular Coke, you're not really doing anything, right? It's an intentional laying down of something that you normally do in your life that is difficult, that causes you to think and concentrate on why you are giving up this thing. It is self-denial to think about God and spiritual things and your need of Him. As we see in here, there are a few things as basic as food. I think it's valid. I think it's valid to give up something other than food for a fast. But to be clear, the Bible normally speaks of fasting from food, not, not water, to pray for a litany of reasons that we're going to discuss in just a minute. So that's what fasting is. But what is the fasting problem here? What is it that these men, this crowd, is so upset about and confused about when they approach Jesus? See, Jesus' disciples don't seem to be breaking any specific biblical command concerning fasting. If you read through your Bible cover to cover, you'll find that the Bible says a lot about fasting. There are about 77 mentions of fasting in the Bible, but there are not a lot of explicit commands about fasting. We have one, right, in Leviticus when it's talking about Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. They had to fast then, but we don't really hear any other commands about fasting until you get to Zephaniah, and there it doesn't seem to be a command, but they've just decided to observe four other days, right, of fasting, And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus really isn't often telling people to fast in a commanding kind of sense. It's more like Jesus is just assuming it. So when he speaks of it in Matthew, he says, when you fast, right, this is how you do it. Not to be seen before men. I don't want you flaunting your fasting. But he says, I want you to understand that fasting is something that spiritual people just do. So the New Testament seems to speak of fasting as sparsely as parsley seems to assume fasting everywhere. So what's going on here? Why in Mark 2 are they upset about the fasting if it's not a violation of some clear biblical mandate? Well, I think commentator R.T. France is helpful. He tells us in his commentary that it seems that the real conflict here is over competing renewal movements, right? Jesus' followers simply don't seem to be as fervent, religious, or self-denying is the other movements in their fasting. And they're curious, they're like, why is it that you just don't look as spiritual as uh, these other guys? I mean, they really put on a show with their fasting, and you guys just don't. Jesus responds to their question with 
Three illustrations to explain why Jesus' disciples had been feasting instead of fasting. And each illustration that we're about to look at makes the same basic point. And the same basic point is this. Jesus is ushering in a new creation that shouldn't be judged on past expectations. Because He's about to change everything. In other words, what we're about to see is, is that Jesus is going to respond saying, you are trying to fit Jesus into some kind of expectational grid that you have created in your understanding of religion, and you don't understand that the God-man himself has just dropped down. He is the one around whom you need to reorient everything you think about yourself, God, and others, and how you meet with him and pursue him. Everything needs to change in light of who he is. That leads us to a really important fact that I think if you are here and you're a non-Christian, that I'd like just for you to know. I know that a lot of religions fast. It's not just Christianity. We're not the only people that fast. All kinds of religions. We have Buddhist and Hindu and others who fast religiously. Muslims, of course, fast all the time. Ramadan, they must fast. It's kind of what defines you as a Muslim. But as Christians, we know that we are not defined by fasting, but by Christ. That's our identity. It's wrapped up in Him. And we also know that as Christians, we are different in the sense that we have an earnest and great hope in our fasting. See, when we fast, we are not fasting to a God who has not revealed himself to us. We have not fasted, we do not fast to a God who has not already come down and entered into life with us in the form of Jesus Christ who died for us and was raised from the dead and intercedes for us even now at the right hand of the Father. So that when we pray as fasting folks, we are praying through one to one who has actually walked before us and knows our suffering so that when we cry out to Him, we know we have an audience with God Himself who loves us, not as distant enemies or aliens or folks who are somehow like maybe closely but not deeply related to Him. He looks at us as sons and daughters. And that's the hope that we have in fasting. It is a beautiful gift that Christians have that is far, goes far beyond any other religion. So, let's look at Jesus and why he says these disciples didn't fast is our second point. We should not expect the new to conform to the old. That's what he wants them to see. We don't expect the new, which is Jesus, to conform to the old, which is the Pharisees and John the Baptist and the other teachers of the past. See, a new day has come and disciples should feast until they fast. That's what we see in verses 19 to 20. A new day has come. It's arrived. It's a good day. You didn't know it. You missed it. It wasn't on your calendars. You weren't ready for it, but it's here. And I'm here to tell you, it is a new day. Everything has changed. That's what Jesus wants them to see. And just catch what Jesus does here. He counters their question with a question, asking in verses 19 to 20. He asks them, he says this, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day, right? So you know here that you're not supposed to fast. It's common sense. You're not supposed to fast at a wedding, right? It's probably a bad sign if you show up to a wedding and the bride has been fasting, not because she wants to fit into her wedding gown, but because she is terrified and prayerful about the man that she's about to be stuck with for the rest of her life. Not a good thing, right? I mean, Fasting is something that typically you do when you have earnest need and desire and you're beseeching God's face for help. And hopefully your wedding is at the time that you're looking for real help, right? And here Jesus says something really obvious. Look, when you're at a wedding, you don't fast. That's not the time to fast. 
The wedding is a time for celebration and rejoicing and joy. And so if the bride is fasting, it's not good. And he says here that I am the bridegroom. So he gives you the picture of a wedding, of a joyous affair that is going on before them. He says, this is what's happening. We are the context of a wedding right now, not the context of sadness and and fasting. The evidence we've uncovered thus far never depicts Jesus or the Messiah before he came as being a bridegroom. That image, we don't have that before we get here in Mark chapter 2 with this illustration that Jesus draws up for us. But what's interesting is, is the Bible does repeatedly refer to God himself as a bridegroom with his people Israel. We see that all over the Old Testament. In fact, a verse that is often nestled in my heart is Jeremiah 2. I love the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 2, 2 to 3, we'll see there that God is speaking to his people. Israel have forsaken him. And God, in his tenderness, reminds them of their love for him in the Exodus. Remember the beginning of our story when I drew you out of Israel? My love for you and your love for me? It was like a couple on a honeymoon. I mean, it was just, it was wonderful and sweet. And he says in Jeremiah 2, 2 to 3, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. You see it? You hear what God says? I remember when your love for me was like that of a young bride for the bridegroom, and God is that bridegroom. Maybe Jesus here in Mark 2 is just tipping the hat to the fact that he's God yet again. But him speaking of here, I think he is saying something else. See, I think that here he is highlighting that the new creation is erupting before them, right? I mean, a marriage, isn't that a picture of something new, a new relationship that is starting? And and a bridegroom is coming out, and it gives you these anticipations of something wonderful that's about to happen. And we know that in this culture, you would have a man that would be betrothed to a woman. Very strong relationship. Only thing that could break it was a divorce. But they weren't officially together until the consummation. So he would leave to go prepare a place for his wife. He would come back to get her and they would be wed together. And so here we see this picture of Jesus coming for his bride as the great bridegroom, as the beginning of a new creation. This is not a new image in the Bible. We see it all over the place. You'll remember the pinnacle of that first creation in Genesis 1. It was God's creation of man and woman in his image and after his likeness. He put that marriage together as the pinnacle of his creative act, saying this, above all else, will express who I am before creation, bearing my image all over the universe. And isn't that the point here? Isn't this a picture that Jesus has come to do something new? I don't think this is talking about the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament here. I don't think that's where he's going with this, saying that Jesus has come to do away with the Old Testament. See, here John and the Pharisees represent the old dead man created standards which are unable to give life and Jesus represents what is new and able to bring new life he's saying you don't need to look to John the Baptist and the Pharisees and try to look at their standards and turn around and judge me I am here as the great judge I am the one by whom all the standards are set something new is happening before you now here's the deal I believe that he really gives us a picture in these short two verses about fasting. I think we can learn three things at least about fasting that I don't want us to miss. 
in verses 20 to 21. First, one reason we fast is because we long for Jesus. One reason we fast is because we long for Jesus. See, fasting reminds us that we really should be hungry for more Jesus. That's what fasting reminds us of. You know, as our stomachs cry out, we speak back to them the reason that we're fasting. It's because we long for Christ. We don't want to get too comfortable in this broken world. And many of us have all kinds of experiences that help remind us not to get too comfortable, right? Maybe that's you this morning. You're thinking, I don't need to be reminded not to be comfortable in this world. You're sick. Uh, Maybe you have a relationship that is broken apart, or you have an empty wallet, or there's death that's happened in your family with someone that you love, and they all remind you that this is not your home. Despite so much of the good that is all around you, you see there is much to commend a new beginning, a new start, a rescue that needs to take place. But we can easily forget. We can forget the goodness of this world. We can forget the badness of this world and the fact that we need something more and what we are actually looking for. Just think about it. The followers of John the Baptist and the Jews fasted as they awaited the coming Messiah. And and they have become so self-righteous and satisfied with their fasting that they've forgotten the real reason why they were fasting. They fasted for more of God. And when the God-man shows up, they don't realize that it's time to turn from fasting to feasting. I mean, how can you miss it? We need more Jesus. But there's a second thing that we see here about fasting, and that's that we should still fast today. The disciples didn't have to fast because Jesus is here. I think that's good news. But notice that Jesus says in verse 20 that he will be taken away from them, these disciples, and then they will fast in that day. See, it's that day today. The day that he's speaking of that he was taken away was the day that he died on the cross and was buried and was raised again and then came down and taught and then ascended to the heavens where he sits now enthroned. He's not with them anymore. And he says, this is the day that we fast. And it's still that day until Jesus comes back. So as they should have been fasting before Jesus came, because we're looking for Jesus, but then they stop because Jesus is here, we're good now, well now Jesus has gone to heaven again, he's going to come back, and so we fast until he gets back, right? It's exactly what he's saying. We fast until that day. Of course here Jesus, speaking of that, gives us this promise that one day we will be reunited with Jesus when he returns to judge the living and the dead. But until that day, we fast. You remember, you can fast from a variety of things. It's normally food. It's important when you fast to focus your fast. Okay, so we're going to be talking about fasting in a minute. We don't want just like not to eat and feel like we've pleased God, but we ought to be coupling it with intentional prayer where we're focusing on something, some need that we have, some hope that we have. Famed missionary David Livingstone, speaking of this, says... Fasting and vigils without a special object in view are time to run waste. So it's a helpful discipline spiritually to fast. Many of the great men and women of the past that we respect fasted. And I can't help but remind you in this moment, because every time I think about fasting, I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon and a very encouraging, glowing endorsement of fasting that he gave. Listen closely. You'll remember Charles Spurgeon. He said this, this should inspire you. I can advise brethren to try fasting. It will be good for their health, and it certainly will not harm them. Yeah, he says it's going to be good for your health, and it's not going to hurt you. I think we can do more than that, right? We can do more than it's just not going to hurt you. 
there's surely some spiritual good to this. Now, I've already named a number of great Christians who valued fasting, and there are more to come, but for now it's helpful to note that fasting seems to be basic, a basic spiritual discipline for Christians. Now, you can fast for one day or three days, or you can do an extended fast for a week or more. You always want to make sure you drink plenty of water, and I would suggest juice if you're going to be fasting more than three days, especially if you start shaking and that sort of thing. But we know that fasting is something that we ought to be doing right now as we are able. It's not a command, but it is something that we should do as we are able to do. It's a good thing. And the third thing we learned about fasting here is that we fast because we know that only Jesus is truly all-satisfying. We make ourselves hungry to remind our stomachs that what we really need is more Jesus. And when he's here, we don't need to fast anymore. When Jesus shows up, our joy will be made full. And he's what we've been waiting on. Make that he's who we've been waiting on. And like a bride longing to see her groom, along with all of creation, she waits. She knows this bride, when he comes, her joy will be made full. And fasting is really all about not settling with this world. Not settling for anything that this world has to offer. After we fast, we can eat, noting that it is good. Food of this world, it's good, as this world's food may be. But we long for the marriage feast of the Lamb. I hear the food's better. See, that's the table that we long to dine at. And that's why Christianity in its truest form is about joy and not mourning. But the bigger issue here than fasting that Jesus wants to draw our attention to, He assumes fasting, but He wants to draw our attention to and their attention to the newness that He ushered in. I mean, did you notice that? All three of these illustrations really are focusing on Newness and not necessarily fasting? So notice, newness is more important than fasting in verses 21 to 22. So it's not that fasting is unimportant here, but Jesus is more concerned with how the new doesn't conform to their old expectations. It's not that the old is bad or evil, but its time has passed. And Jesus offers two more quick illustrations to highlight this, with the first in verse 21. Look there again. Look at what Jesus says. The first, notice he says, no one sews a piece of unchunked cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So here, it's pretty self-explanatory. Back in the day, have a job, a guy who would be called like a fuller would come and clean, and he would comb the cloth, removing natural oil and gum and other things. They would be washed away, and it would be bleached so that they could use it to make new garments or make garments. An unfulled cloth could shrink when washed with the new cloth, ripping the old cloth, leaving it worse than when they came. So the point is, this little unfulled new piece of cloth tied to old cloth would rip it. It wouldn't patch it and fix it. It would rip it. It couldn't contain the new thing that had happened. It couldn't fit into the grid. The other picture that he gives is one of wineskins. Look in verse 22 there. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, his point is that Jesus is this bridegroom who has newly come in, ushering in the new creation. He is the new cloth and the new wine. And the old existing religious traditions and structures of the Pharisees regarding forgiveness of sins or who you could eat with or whatever couldn't contain the new day that Jesus ushered in. 
They needed to be ready for the newness of Christ. Followers would need to break free from them to follow Christ. In other words, they needed to quit trying to tell Jesus who he should be and pay more attention to who Jesus is by listening to Jesus' words. And I think this is the same today. We still need to be cautioned from this. We can be tempted to want to create a Jesus of our own imagination, right? We can try to make Jesus something way different than who Jesus is and who he's revealed himself to be. We like to do a lot more talking and a lot less listening when it comes to Christ. Now, how do you know that? Well, how do you approach the scriptures? Do you go into the scriptures uh, looking for verses that really kind of just sort of support what you already believe and make you feel good about your already held belief system? Or are you actually going to the scriptures and asking them to correct you and change you and transform you so that you look more like the human that God has made you to be? Or do you go to your Bible and when you find things that are difficult for you, you say, well, that can't be right. The Bible got that wrong. I don't like that. I wish he would have said something else. If God really knew who I was and who I am, he would have said it this way. So we still can go into our scriptures. We can still argue with God about who Christ actually is, trying to create a Christ that we desire him to be. But the way that we have been created, we have been created for the purpose of giving glory to God and submitting to him and all that he has called us to. That means that when we go before the word of God, we need to submit humbly to it, looking to be changed and made new. Because Jesus really has brought in something new and better than this broken world has seen. We need to listen to God's word and become more intimate with the newness that he has ushered in for us in the new and better covenant. So much of Christian living is seeking to understand who Christ is, who we are in Christ, and how we ought to live as Christians in light of our relationship to Christ. It really is a new day. It means that Jesus has created a kingdom of sinners saved by grace who are being transformed by the power of the Spirit day by day more and more and the more faithful image bearers of God. And remember, Jesus said when the bridegroom left his disciples, they would fast. Jesus came and went, but we are promised that he will come again. And that means that we are in a day now that we ought to fast. And because so few scriptures speak of fasting, I thought it would be helpful for us to end with some applications about fasting. The reality of Jesus, we need to think through how that ought to shape how we fast until he comes back. So how do we do this? Well, let's think about this application for a minute. First, let me give you a caution about two dangers when it comes to fasting. I think we've got a couple of dangers when we think through fasting. Let me set those out front. These are protective guards. The first danger is asceticism. Now, asceticism is that idea that you can deny yourself something and should deny yourself something so that you can win favor with God. And we've had many ascetics in the past who have encouraged all sorts of really strange, painful practices like extended fast or other painful endeavors to draw near to God. Many of you have probably heard of Daniel the Stylite, right? The guy who, this is true story as far as we know, I don't think this is lore, he actually spent 33 years living on a pillar, three pillars, he would just kind of rotate between them, right? He did that for 33 years. You know how hard it is to witness to somebody when you're living on a pillar? Pretty hard. You know how hard it is to sleep? Can you imagine falling off that thing? And he thought that this won him great favor with God. Well, it did win him a pretty good place in history books for Christianity, but I'm not so sure that was the best way to please God. That's one danger, though, we have. We can start fasting in such a way 
that we think to ourselves, well, I have done this, so God owes me. And we might even get angry with God because we think that he's not giving us what we deserve. Well, let me just let you know, like, when you fast, if you fast longer, you probably will get angry, probably get hangry, right? You'll notice that you got, like, those hunger angers where you're like, I need food. Oh, this is bad. Like, I just need food now, right? I think that in those moments, what actually happens is, in our fasting, we start to see more of our own hearts and the sin issues that we have. And we need to realize the point of our fasting really is to draw us near to God. And as we draw near to God, we're going to see some sin in our hearts. We need to repent of those things and turn more faithfully to God and trust in hope. But be careful not to turn your fasting into an idol. An idol you begin to worship and trust it and what it deserves because of your faithfulness to it. The other danger is consumerism. And this is probably where most of us are at. Most of us live in a consumeristic culture that's just really about getting more goods and getting them quickly and when we want, as fast as we want, right? I mean, it's hard to think about fasting in a culture where you've got McDonald's or Chick-fil-A. We just live in this consumeristic culture that tells us That, you know, it's all about getting more and getting it now. And in that culture, we can forget about the value of fasting. So hear me, asceticism, asceticism can tell you that you need to idolize fasting. Consumerism can tell you that there's no value in it and you just want value. And some of us are probably somewhere between those, maybe on one end of the spectrum. One we don't because we're like, what's it going to do for me? Like, is it really going to succeed in what I'm looking for to get out of it? The other is, I'm going to do it, and God's really going to owe me if I do this. And we need to understand that neither of those are true. Our fasting ought to be focused on Christ. Christ and what He has achieved for us. Christ and what He has promised for us. Christ and the future that we look forward to. Those are the ways that we ought to be thinking about fasting. So, what do we fast for? Maybe you're thinking, I need to fast, so what do I fast for? Well, let me give you some things that that you can fast for. See, we find in the Bible all kinds of illustrations of fasting. One... We've already seen that we fast to remind our hearts to hunger after heaven, after the presence of God, right? We just saw that with Jesus when he was speaking to the disciples. He is the bridegroom who is with us. And when he is with us, we do not fast, we feast. But when he goes away, we fast. Why is that? Well, it's because when he's here, we've got what we need and want. We've got Jesus himself. And when he's away, we don't have Jesus like we want him. We want him back. And that's why we fast. We want more of God. We fast to remind our stomachs that man doesn't live by bread alone. We need Jesus himself. There's a second thing that we fast for in the Bible. We fast to fight sin. You'll remember that Jesus in Matthew 4 is about to be tempted by Satan himself. And he fasted 40 days before going before Satan to fight him with nothing but God's word. And friends, that gives us, I believe, a picture of the way that we ought to face temptation. If we are struggling with sins, if you have a sin that you're struggling with this morning, uh, maybe you need to fast and pray that God would help you conquer that sin, that he would bring help around you to help you defeat that. See, fasting helps us recalibrate our hearts to the glory of God. Third thing that we fast for is to strengthen prayer. You'll remember that before leading exiles back to Jerusalem, Ezra held a fast to protect them on their journey. In Ezra 8.23, he says, because of the danger we feared, we fasted, and petitioned our God about this, and He answered our prayers. So may we pray this way for God to heal sickness over folks in our congregation. Let's fast and pray that those who are sick would be healed. Uh, let's pray, let's pray and fast that we would see more people saved locally and globally. Let's fast that people would come to Christ. Fourth thing that we see prayer for in fasting in the Bible is seeking God's guidance. You'll remember that Paul and Barnabas In Acts 14, when they're about to 
place elders over particular churches that they have raised up and started and loved so much. They fasted. They fasted to think about who they would entrust these people they loved so much, God's people, who they would entrust their souls with. They fasted over that. We see also in the Bible evidence that they prayed and fasted for deliverance and protection, like Queen Esther. You remember when she went before the fearsome King Xerxes, the great king who was willing to, to devastate nations. She went before him to ask and petition him for mercy for her own little people, the Jews. And she asked for a fast of protection for her before her enemies. I believe that we can still do the same when we pray for our country, asking for protection from enemies that might result from our own nation's sins. We also see evidence of prayer and fasting for repentance. So in 1 Samuel 7, 6, Israel fasted and confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. So they fasted and prayed about that. Maybe that's you today. You you need to repent of some sin in your life and and you want to take a time and, and fast and pray asking forgiveness from your Father. He's quick to forgive. He's faithful to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you'll come before Him and ask Him. And also, we see it as an expression of love for God. I love the picture of Anna, who in, we're told in Luke that Anna had spent 84 years in the temple as a woman who was um, alone and, and prayed to God daily in those 84 years. Three verses in the Bible cover those 84 years, and we're told that she worshiped and fasted and prayed day and night because she loved God and awaited the coming of Jesus. And that's the picture that we get of Anna. Now, these are, I believe, all good reasons we have in the Bible for fasting. And there are more. But what we'd like to do is we'd like to think about this week. It's January. It's beginning a new year. A great time for new starts. And for thinking about how God might use us and what God might do in your life. And this is an excellent time, I believe, for all of us to fast and to pray. And we'd like to encourage that this morning. But before we talk about what we're going to do, I want to read you an encouraging quote by Hudson Taylor, that famed missionary to Burma, and what he said about fasting. And let that frame our thoughts about fasting as we consider how we might fast together. This is what he says. In Shanzi, I found Chinese Christians who are accustomed to spend time in fasting and prayer. They recognize that this fasting, which so many dislike, which requires faith in God, since it makes, no, it makes one feel weak and poorly, is really a divinely appointed means of grace. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to our work is our own imagined strength. And in fasting, we learn what poor, weak creatures we are, dependent on a meal of meat for the little strength with which we are so apt to lean upon. See, fasting and prayer, it reminds us of our weakness before God and our need of Him. I really do believe that God loves when His people pray and fast to Him, showing our weakness, and our dependence on His strength. So let's begin the year doing that, confessing together that we are dependent on the strength of God, not on our own strengths and efforts. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together.
listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866 8999 or org at gmail.com That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com Following this program is the questions from the Bible program series. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program, Questions from the Bible. Today is the finale for the Questions from the Bible program series. In praying and considering what would be a good question from the Bible to share with you, I came upon a very important question. This is the most important question that we all must answer. 
It is the question that Jesus Christ asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. But who do you say that I am? Jesus asked this question to his disciples as they came to the Caesarea Philippi region. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This region was named Caesarea by the Tetrarch Philip out of respect for the Roman Emperor. This region was the heart of idol worship, previously of Baal and later of the Greek gods. During Jesus' era, this city under Roman rule, worshipped the Roman emperor. All throughout history, the city was deep in idolatry. In such a city of idolatry, Jesus asked his disciples, But who do you say that I am? However, before he asked this question, Jesus had first asked a different question. In verse 13, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in verse 14, his disciples answered, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This answer shows what many people thought of Jesus at the time. Some people thought Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist because of his similar message of repentance. And some thought of Elijah as they saw Jesus perform miracles and some others thought of him as one of the prophets delivering the word of God. These Old Testament prophets, or John the Baptist, were those who prepared the coming of the Messiah, but they were not the Messiah themselves. Unfortunately, many people of Jesus' era saw the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but only considered him one of the prophets. The actual question Jesus wanted to ask his disciples was not, who do people say that the Son of Man is, but rather the second question of, but who do you say that I am? What he is truly asking is, sure, people say I am John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? The answer that Peter gave is so famous, just about every believer has it memorized. In verse 16, Peter answered Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the Greek word meaning the same as the Hebrew of Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean the anointed. In the Old Testament, those who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. The word Christ or Messiah ties all three positions into one person, the Savior, who comes with the full authority of God. At some point, this became a specific word that means the anointed one for the kingdom of God who came to save all men. God promised to send a Messiah, and Israel waited for the Messiah. Therefore, Peter is confessing that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament by saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, he means Jesus is the Messiah God promised us, the Savior and the Son of the living God. We have heard this ideal answer from Peter via sermons and Bible study and can give an answer like Peter's pretty much automatically. However, Jesus' question of, but who do you say that I am, is not looking for a set answer, but asking for a confession of who we really believe he is. 
Therefore, it is not about how difficult the question is, but rather about the answer that reveals our faith in Jesus as our Savior, and if we have a personal relationship with him. As a matter of fact, there are people who attend church but cannot answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to this question. I myself have asked this question to some people and have heard them answer, I believe in God, but I cannot believe in Jesus. Or, I cannot confidently say that Jesus is my Savior. As Jesus said to Peter, it is God our Father in heaven who let him know this, and not any person. No one can confess Jesus as the Savior without the Holy Spirit. Do you believe Jesus is the true Son of the living God? Do you confess that only Jesus is the Christ, your Savior? Like many people of that era that considered Jesus just one of the prophets, many people today think of Jesus as someone from Israel's history or one of the many great men. Some understand him to be a teacher of ethics. They think the virgin birth and the resurrection are just made-up myths. Jesus is not asking us what those other people think of who Jesus is. He is asking each of us, but who do you say that I am? Also, Jesus did not ask this question in the temple in Jerusalem or as they were praying and sharing the word. He asked this in the middle of a city famous for idolatry. Likewise, Jesus will ask this of us, not only when we are at church or with a fellowship group, but also when we are in the middle of a city that is spiritually corrupt, when we are part of a crowd, or even when we are alone with no one else in sight. But who do you say that I am? And when the day comes that we stand in front of him, Jesus will ask, But who do you say that I am? I pray that when Jesus asks each of us this question, we can wholeheartedly confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior and prove this through each of our lives. This is the final question for the series, Questions from the Bible. It has been a pleasure bringing you this program. Thank you for listening. God bless you all, and goodbye.
If Akwari's purpose of running the race was for a medal, he would have given up the moment he realized that he could not win it. Or, if he was just satisfied with participating in the marathon itself, he would have given up the race when he was injured. No one would have criticized him for giving up the race due to his injury. But because he knew that his country sent him with the purpose of him finishing the race, he continued to finish it no matter what. I wonder what God's purpose of sending us on earth is. Why do you think God has sent us on earth? Do you think we Christians are here to win medals? Is it God's purpose for us to win first place? If we look at the biblical figures, I would say no. Of course, there are some who were successful but were persecuted and suffered on earth. Then, God's purpose is not about the amount of success. Because it is not consistent, then what could it be? What is the reason? Apostle Paul gives us an answer. Apostle Paul, realizing his time was near, confesses in his letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I found our purpose of living in this world through the confession of Apostle Paul. It is to fight the good fight and to finish the course. We don't need to win first place. We don't have to finish the race fast. 
but we are to finish our course in faith. Our ultimate goal is not about winning first prize. However, many Christians make the mistake of defining their purpose in winning, then fall, get hurt, and give up the race because they were living for the wrong purpose. We ought to remind ourselves of our purpose. Winning first place is not the purpose. It's to finish the course by fighting the good fight and holding on to our faith. Because Jesus Christ, who ran in front of us already, won first place. We are finishing up 2017 for the race of 2017 Have you fought the good fight? Did you hold on to faith well? Do not give up. Remember, Akwari, who finished the race, even with his injured knee, didn't pay attention to the others and only focused on the race. He knew exactly the purpose of his race. For all of us, let's remember the purpose of our race. May we step forward with faith as we run the new race of 2018. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me in 2017. God bless. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain So I've cherished the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last Call me someday to my home.